Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about The Brood, directed and written by David Cronenberg. Some relevant trigger warnings for this movie include body horror, gaslighting, body horror, misogyny, body horror, child abuse, and more body horror. If you'd like to learn more about the movie discussed this evening, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes and a transcript. And after the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full. So be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we own horror to progressive standards never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about our last Cronenberg movie of November, The Truly Wild, The Brood. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Look, not to victim shame the people in this movie, but I'm reasonably confident that I could do a way better job just fighting off tiny children. Tiny newborn. Even tiny. Pet. Yeah. The ones that can... bites back in this movie. They just writhe and scream while getting lightly hit with hammers. Mm. And it's really silly. Those kids could shoot a uh, paperweight through a wall like it was fired out of a gun. I saw that wall. It was fucking two centimeters thick. That was some shoddy ass craftsmanship. Yeah. For all That's the fair. home improvement shows that are hosted in Canada. I mean, really, <laughs> that wall didn't seem that tough. That's why they need improving. Right, I imagine. It's the Property Brothers hadn't, hadn't been born yet at this point. And the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co-host, Emily Martin. Emily, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right. I, I have an announcement to make, a public service announcement, if you will. If you have had any really bad gaslighting experiences with doctors in the 70s where you've grown gremlins out your back and they kill without remorse or thought, you may be entitled to compensation. Is that the advertisement for the lawyer that Art Hindle goes? And I love I, they cause him a mensch. We get legit Jewish representation in this movie. <laughs> There's yeah. a very Jewish lawyer and that one police psychologist, Epic Jufro. <laughs> in addition to, you know, the inherent Jewish representation of just being a Cronenberg movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so as you said, this one is written by David Cronenberg and is directed by David Cronenberg. It stars Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, giving just an amazing performance. Hell yeah. Emily says I have to read the IMDb recap to you before I start the full recap. Because this one's nuts. A man tries to uncover an unconventional psychologist's therapy techniques on his institutionalized wife amidst a series of brutal murders. And on Amazon, or no, I think it was HBO Max that I was watching it. It was just basic divorce proceedings gone wrong. Talked about... You know, how Videodrome inspired Akira and Crimes of the Future is almost uh, Cronenberg doing his little victory lap around all of like his imitators and all the people he's influenced. But I have to ask, did the brood inspire Kramer versus Kramer? <laughs> no, because it was, well, the, David Cronenberg this said movie in the interview. First. It this did? one came first. Yes. Shit. I thought he said it was his own Kramer versus Kramer. Well, I'm sure he said that later on, but yeah, 1979, The Brood in 19, oh, 1979. Okay, same year. Never mind. <laughs> okay, yeah. So he said it was his version of it. I don't know. It's definitely the Armageddon slash Deep Impact of 1979, of you know Kramer versus Kramer and The Brood. Practically the so, same movie. For what it's worth, I am correct. The Brood came out in June. Kramer versus Kramer came out in December. Kramer well, vs. Kramer was a Christmas movie? What the fuck? Sometimes it gotta get real, you it know? Even a December 19th release slot. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, imagine <laughs> taking that to your, your kid to Kramer versus Kramer on Christmas Eve, not knowing any fucking idea because the internet doesn't exist. Listen, at least that kid isn't on the set of The Brood because talk about a movie about therapy. This is a movie that's going to fund therapy. These yeah. poor kids. Okay, so Jeremy, you asked, was David Cronenberg okay when he made this film? <laughs> and the answer to that is an emphatic no. Absolutely not. Uh, he has, in interviews and in books, directly stated that 
the characters of Frank and the daughter are based off of him and his own daughter. Nola is his ex-wife. And the final scene where the husband strangles her to death was, and a direct quote, very satisfying. Jesus so Christ. right out the gate, is this movie feminist? Oh, absolutely there's, not. There's some wild stuff going on in here, not just from a like divorce and feminism standpoint, but also from a feelings about therapy standpoint. The climax of this movie is a man heroically choking his wife to death. Yeah, heroically is the word I would use, but I he mean, does save the daughter by doing it. But then, but yeah, we'll we'll get there. Let's go, let's go, Jeremy. Let's recap so we all right. have some context so here. Here's the recap. We start with the demonstration of psychoplasmics by Doctor Raglan, who is role playing the father of another man who is self harming, and he's helping him try and you know talk through this stuff by pretending to be his father. People are watching this. Part, one of the people watching this role play is Frank Carveth, uh, who is our main character, who's here to pick up his daughter, Candace, or Candy, as they will frequently call her throughout, who has been spending the weekend with her mother, who was at this institution. Frank takes Candy home and finds scratches and bruises all over her. Frank wants to get full custody of the kid and is willing to threaten Dr. Raglan himself to do it. Dr. Raglan is not going to do that and says, that, you know, he's going to cause his daughter and his wife a lot of harm. Then as Frank goes to the lawyer we talked about, there's a lot of real MRA speaking points here of like, oh, you know, the government really, really wants to keep kids with their moms. They don't care about dads. You know, they they won't ever give dads custody of anything, uh, which like at some level is true. But this kid also has lots of visible wounds from her mother. So that would be, I think, a different situation. Yeah. For the record, though, we are not experts on Canadian divorce law in the 1970s. Also, Dr. Raglan is a fucking demon. Like, he is some kind of supervillain. Oliver Reed <laughs> is subsisting on a diet entirely made of scenery in this movie. <laughs> and yeah. a yolk sack. Don't worry. Don't forget about the yolk sack. Oh, I trust me. I am actively repressing it. Like, <laughs> as hard as I can. So, uh, Frank takes Candy to go stay with Nola's mom while... Uh, Dr. Raglan puts Nola through a special session where she's working through her rage issues with her mother, who was abusive. Raglan tells her to push through the pain and come out the other side. Meanwhile, something shows up at the grandma's house and murders her. Poor Candy finds uh, her dead grandma and finds whatever killed her, which at this point, all we can tell about it is that it's about two feet tall and dressed like a Canadian child because it's wearing a puffy jacket. And then uh, the, when the police do arrive and find her because they're investigating a broken window, she's in deep sleep on her bed, won't tell anybody what happened, just like she won't tell them about any of the stuff with the scratches before. Nola's dad, who is estranged after her parents were divorced, comes into town for the funeral of her now-dead mother, just as we learn that Nola also resents him for not stopping her mother's abuse. Dad tries to go talk to Nola about her mom's death, and Raglan won't let him do it because he says that he's afraid that you know, it won't be good for her because it's too traumatic. Frank, in the meantime, is going to visit a madman who is talking to him about psychoplasmics and is telling it's him about how... Mad. Uh, he's quite mad. He's rolling, literally rolling around on the floor and doing weird cardio while Frank is talking to him in this section. But... Look, he does the have man a is the mad, that... but not because of the rolling, but because of that fucking comb over. Yeah. He's angry, is what he is. Well, he, he thinks that uh, Raglan has given him lymphatic cancer through the process of uh, psychoplasmics. That's never really answered, but it seems from, you know, other stuff going on in the movie that maybe. Grandpa wants to go back and fight the psychologist and just invited Frank to come over and help him, but decides to go hang out in the old house and get drunk while he's waiting, uh, where he is then murdered by a tiny gremlin using glass paper weights. Frank shows up and finds the dead grandpa and almost gets murdered by this tiny gremlin as well. Before the gremlin just runs out of power and dies like a Duracell bunny, or I guess it's an ener like an Energizer bunny. I think it stopped the Energizer, Jeremy. Yeah, so this is... He's a Duracell bunny. He does stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, right. This is the point where things start to get real weird. And we go from like having a commentary on things to uh, really going into a long discussion about what's up with this tiny child. Because the autopsy doctor makes a real meal out of talking about how messed up this little kid gremlin is. There's a feed sack in its back that keeps it going, which is apparently what ran out so that it died. 
has no genitals, no teeth, and dun dun dun, no navel. So it was never truly born. It's destined to kill Macbeth, as far as I'm concerned. Meanwhile, Nola decides to call the house, which seems like it shouldn't be okay, and uh, gets the teacher who was staying there babysitting uh, the daughter while the dad is out running these various errands, various murder errands. Nola decides that's not okay that the teacher is there, calls her a bitch, and says that she's trying to ruin her family. The teacher, for her credit, when the dad comes back, when Frank comes back, (laughs) she's like, I'm going to ollie out of this. I have no interest in being part of this drama. Do not call me. I will see you at parent-teacher night. (laughs) The teacher sees the red flags and actually nopes the fuck out. Yeah, I mean, bless her heart. Frank tells Candy it's going to be all better now because the creature is dead. The doctor sends all of his patients away because he's going to do something to focus on Nola, which also seems to involve a gun at this point. He's He's loading his gun and bringing that around places. The gremlin shows up at Candy's school, beats her teacher to death with wooden hammers, and then kidnaps her and in this Probably the scariest scene of this movie. This small children walk down the side of a busy Canadian highway through the ice and snow. Frank finds out that the doctor's big breakthrough experiment is with Nola, but involves disturbed kids from the work shed that she's taking care of. Frank goes to Raglan to investigate. Raglan tells Frank about the kids and how the brood are children of her rage and react only to her rage. Raglan tells Frank that he's going to go save Candy, but in order for him to do that, he needs Frank to keep Nola calm because if she gets mad, the kids are going to get real killy. So Frank goes in and starts talking to Nola, but cannot hold it together when Nola opens her hospital gown to reveal her extra nipples and her uh, external rage uterus, which she rips open the amniotic sac of with her teeth and then licks the baby clean in front of him. Frank can't handle this, and it's very visibly grossed out. Men, am I right? Okay, I also could not handle this. Her biting into it, I legit gagged. I mean, yeah, her the, biting into the it. Goo I feel like that comes out of it is just. It is the world's biggest and grossest gusher. It meat, was meat flavored gushers. I was... hope whatever that liquid was was like strawberry flavored something because she had to lick so much of it. This tomato sauce. And this is the scene where she know. is really killing it like this actress is ripping up the scenery devouring it like she's doing so much she is giving it a hundred and ten percent in every scene she really is she's really carrying this movie that's the only feminist thing about this movie is that she is the star yeah she's barely in it and she's easily the star of it by far the most memorable part of the movie oh yeah so frank's obvious disgust gets Racklin killed and uh, good gets, i'm still not sure these children like <laughs> i still don't understand what those children do that causes ragland to be dead they don't have teeth they didn't bite him they just like climb on him and then blood appears and he dies they do apparently have weird beaks inside their mouth uh, one of the things the mortician says he says it'll really hurt you if they bite you though they don't have any teeth so at this point, after Raglan is killed, Nola says that she'd rather kill Candace before let Frank take her away from her, at which point the rage gremlins all get up together and turn on Candace and start attacking her. Candace, to her credit, unlike anybody else in this movie, knows how a door and a lock work and hides from them. They're beating on the door, trying to kill her. And the only solution is for Frank to choke his wife to death so that his daughter can survive. You know, he kills her and then runs up and finds the daughter huddled in a corner, takes her out in the car, and they, they drive away. And the last sort of thing that we see is that there are, you know, new outgrowths on Candace. And it looks like maybe she is developing some sort of external rage uterus thing as well. The end. Woo! Okay. Rage so, uterus. That's the t-shirt. Rage ra- uterus. Rage uterus, I mean, correct. Just rage any uterus, uterus against the machine. For real. Primal rage uterus. You know, if this movie is not empowering, I feel like somebody no. could isolate just the idea of a rage uterus to create minions to go and kill the people that fucked with you as like something that might be empowering. Sure. Where the minions it, come from? This movie has no interest <laughs> in empowering Nola, though. Like, if no. anything, that is the opposite of the movie's goal. Like, I feel like nine out of ten movies with that setup and even that finale would have had Noah be like, oh, 
the screaming of my child, I am full of regret and do a redemptive Jesus-y self-sacrifice to save my child. This movie yeah. does not even give her, like, humanity in death. It is just straight up like, well, I guess I have perfectly arranged just the situation where it is morally acceptable for me to choke my wife to death. Yeah. And the other thing about this is that it, it the story is really focused on the relationship of Nola and Frank. But the real monster is Raglan, who is a fucked up, self-involved piece of shit psychiatrist or psychologist who is completely basically like a cult leader. Oh, without point. a doubt. And yet yeah. the movie is still way more sympathetic towards him than it is Nola. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at it with the knowledge of the ramifications of his practice, without the whole idea of psychoplasmics, without the body horror element at all, this movie is terrifying just because of the abuse of power that this man is is utilizing. And that's the only way that I can really get into the movie being sympathetic to Nola, because she is being gaslit so hard that she forms a bunch of gremlins that kill without remorse or thought they she basically animates her rage into these rage babies i think it says so much about you know what cronenberg's goal was where his head was at like we don't see the deterioration of this relationship we don't see when things were good we only get interested in the story when frank has utterly written off nola like left for dead like full-on wants to take the kid they, they are already so far into the divorce you can't see where the love ever was in the first place well like, and the movie also is not interested in just giving any fucking humanity yeah mom and dad aren't giving back together in this movie but also mom is basically like a kool-aid slave to raglan yes. you know who is taking advantage of the situation like the whole thing with the public therapy session with the role play even without getting like weird rage rashes, that is fundamentally perverse. There's definitely like an A24 mo version of this movie that either doesn't have the body horror or saves the body, all the body horror for like the last five minutes. And it's just about this guy losing his wife into like this mysterious psychoanalyst cult that the further he tries to get to his wife, the more he loses his own sense of sanity. That's definitely in the A24 version. Yeah. But that requires, that requires Frank and Nola to have, like, Frank to have anything but utter disgust and contempt for Nola. And it's a little upsetting with this kind of, I don't know if it's tone deafness or just neglects of those plot elements. I mean, this movie is iconic in its way. But I don't know if it's Criterion Collection iconic. And that is how it was presented on HBO Max. So, I mean. No, that David, is. David Cronenberg is good at stuff and I like it. But this is not his best work. This is this like, I would put like, scanners up there. Not, not this. This does not feel like, ooh, a new auteur has hit the film scene. This feels like a strongly messaged, like, Canadian broadcast TV movie. This does not feel like something that should have gotten a theatrical release. I mean, this is still really early in his career. Yeah. Um, you know, this is pre-video drone. It's pre-scanners. Um, you know, at this point, he'd made like Rabbit and Peep Show and Shivers. And that was uh, really about it. Yeah, um, Rabbit this deserves is like to be CTV, Halloween, or October original movie. Yeah, this movie, I feel like if you don't know anything about it going in, it's a really fascinating movie. Which I because, didn't. Yeah, because throughout oh. it, I think you're like, what are these creatures? What's going on? Like, what is happening in this movie? And accurate. You could not have guessed. No, I right? did not. <laughs> you could not. <laughs> you could not have said, I think I know what's going on here. Even though like watching it back now for the second time, I was like, huh, okay, they're kind of putting this all together. I remember watching it the first time and getting to like her little amniotic sack in her lap and her ripping that open and being like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. Like, this is bizarre. They just went real ham in like the last 10 minutes of this movie. Right. The last 10 minutes were right from the beginning. That opening scene, which is 
so fucked up. Yeah. The entire Michael character, holy shit. But, like, that opening scene of just, like, misogyny, gender, masculinity, I don't know, just awful. And then I'm like, oh, it's a play. Okay. But it's not. They're just doing a play. Oh, no, it's public therapy. Public humiliation therapy. At no point during at any moment of this movie's runtime did I feel like I had a firm grasp on what was happening and where this was going. Well, I feel like throughout it, you're like, okay, Raglan is definitely the bad guy. Like, Raglan is making this happen somehow. He's the one behind all of these murders, clearly. And then, like, you get to the end and you're like, oh, actually... He's just psychologist Frankenstein, and he's made a monster out of this woman. Like, he has turned her into something that produces evil gremlins, and he can't control it anymore. How about Nola's bedroom, where she has pictures of famous psychologists, including Raglan, like, on her wall, like they are, like, movie stars? I mean, there's a lot. That cabin also was not insulated. Talk about buildings with two centimeter thick walls. No wonder everyone's wearing their parkas inside. Yeah, this, um, movie, this movie looks fucking cold, too. This looks cold all yeah. day long. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like a lot of movies, like, aren't really good at making me feel like, oh, these people are cold and uncomfortable. Every outdoor scene in this movie, I'm like, oh, it's definitely, like, January in Toronto. This mm-hmm. sucks for everyone involved. Bold earth tones. A lot of gray and brown and some... There's just slush. Yeah, in this movie and it works it's not a bad part but it's definitely like not intentional it's not like they're like oh we have the budget to clear it out or create slush it's just well this is toronto in january yeah. this is what it looks like extra nihilism oh man just the bleakness everything must connect to crimes of the future which, again, as we've been watching all these other movies, I am increasingly realizing is just him fucking flexing so hard after 40 years of, like, increased <laughs> filmmaking. Where we talked about, like, oh, that had a really weird striking opening, and that got me into the level of vibes I needed to properly enjoy this movie. This movie does it where the first scene is very striking and confusing and unnerving, but it doesn't vibe me in. It's just really weird and uncomfortable. It is incredibly uncomfortable. And I think that is an attempt to make Raglan like the fucking awful monster demon that he is to present him that way. The depiction of Raglan is surprisingly neutral when we when it comes to just the focus on him. You know, he is an asshole and he is deplorable. But in the film's conflict, we don't know what he wants. We don't know his motivation. He's just doing some shit that is questionable and gives no reason for it. We don't get what his goal is in his psychoplasmics or whatever. We don't even get an explanation of what psychoplasmics are, just context clues that, that are something about a manifestation of anger in your body and like you know basically like being angry causes cancer problematic um, that was such a weird scene where he's talking about the lawsuit i yeah. still don't know what that was about what that added i feel like that added it did add something because it did show other victims of his therapy you know all um, he did is role no no i mean no therapy. i totally understand it's not like, it's that not like a character. point where it's like and then he hooks her up to a machine and that's yeah. when Things get weird. Oh, no, it's I, just like... I understand having the scene of that character. I just mean it's like, and then we're going to get real into what this guy's legal PR strategy is. I mean, I thought that that was... You no, know, he's very, he's an eccentric, eccentric person. Well, I also, I felt like it was more like he is trying to fight against this. Like, it's, it's a, um, establishing that Raglan is a rich asshole that has a lot of people on his side, but also that his, his therapy is so weird and esoteric. It's like anybody who files for suits against these like mi- miracle cures and stuff, they get their suits dismissed because people, judges specifically and juries can't identify why somebody would fall for that shit when people do every day. And I feel I, like that, I mean, that's more of a compelling story to me than than like the story of 
the monster mom that became a monster that monstered all over her child. Again, the cult stuff, like the way he like isolates people from their family, the way he like clearly fosters and fuels delusions, inserts himself into his patients' lives in wildly inappropriate ways. That is totally like true hot crime podcast material into mm-hmm. that. But if I'm called into jury duty and this man with a towel wrapped around his neck comes and says, like, that psychologist is so good at therapy, he made me give myself cancer. I mean, you would have to change how you phrase it. But yeah, I mean, and if I was him, I wouldn't go into that and the courtroom with the towel. I'd be like, here it is. You make the jury look at that nonsense. Yeah. Hey, hey, jury, before therapy with him. I didn't have this goiter. After that, I did. You know, and that is honestly like, and if, I mean, he is right about that just being the bad publicity. I will say, if he wins that lawsuit, fuck, you can sue. That sets a horrible legal precedent. I think that's why he felt like he could win it. You could sue. You, that would open you to be able to sue your therapist for any illness you get during your time as a patient for mental health. That Again, is a more... horrible precedent. Yes. Canadian mental health systems will be devastated within five years. Yeah, well, I mean, mental health already sucks, but like, and, you know, in Canada too, like, don't get me wrong. Yes, the healthcare system is, is better than ours. But I'm ours a terrible like, movie shits. critic. I went into the fly being like, your scientific practices are sketchy, Goldblum. And now I'm debating like, Legal strategy, legal precedent, Canadian legal precedent in the brood. But this is something that was considered. I actually was pretty compelled. I think his name was like Harlan or Harton. The I have it in my notes, but I can't. Oh, Harton. Yeah, I was actually pretty compelled by that character because it also gave us a little bit of context of what was going on and the effects of that treatment. And also a discussion of these kind of crazy like snake oil treatments that people peddle that are happening right now in this age of anti-vaxxing. You know what I mean? That said, this movie is about the relationship. It's not about this fucking cult leader. And the cult leader gets got, certainly, but he does get got trying to redeem himself. He knows he, like, needs to be redeemed, but it's, like, a too little, too late situation. Like, that whole movie happened on the side. The one thing I can say about this movie in terms of, like, feminism and sympathy and stuff like that is that it is very obvious from the get-go that candace is the biggest victim of this whole situation oh yeah candace isn't much of a character she is a very just like child actor yeah oh yeah no like i mean that is what sets off the plot that is what makes frank the protagonist is just he sees that harm has been done to his child and everything else in the plot is kicked off by him working to make sure no harm comes to his child even or especially if he's gotta choke his wife to death to do it yeah no he sucks nobody understands children in this movie and candace is like regularly ignored okay my favorite scene in the movie is after the brood kill the teacher which by the way if those hammers are tough enough to kill a teacher i don't think they should be in the classroom in the first place I mean, there should be very light plastic. But again, nobody except for Harlan Ragland even attempts to fight back against the brood. There's like, well, I guess I'm being murdered by a child. But then after that, Frank rushes in, sees the dead body, <laughs> puts a drawing, a we plan oh, drawing <laughs> over the body. And then we immediately cut to him rushing out, presumably having left a group of children in a room with the dead body of their own teacher. Yeah, who's one of the most decent people in this film. Yeah, I, I love the little kid, too, who runs out to tell Frank and is like, the bad kids killed our teacher and then they left. And it's like, what? Yeah. Frank's like, that, that doesn't it's, seem right. You know, I'm sure a lot of things were done. To make sure that the kids were comfortable. But it doesn't change the fact that they still were, like, watching this dead body of this woman, you know, or seeing, like, the body of the woman on the ground with the blood and seeing her attacked. Uh, He put the pumpkin seed drawing over the body. They were watching. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then, like, the woman who played 
Candace is actually in a lot of movies. I think she's fine. I haven't done a huge amount of research, but I did look her up. People like, is she Because, you know. She was a kid in a lot more movies after this, and it's still been in, you know, movies after that as well. Yeah, she was um, also in The Dead Zone, I think, or or mm-hmm. one of those, or Scanners. Or, yeah, she was in a couple other Cronenberg movies, which I'm like, Jesus Christ. I was reading up on this movie, and I think this might have broken poor Oliver Reed a bit, because apparently he was arrested during the making of this movie. Because he made a bet that he could walk from one bar to another without freezing, completely stripped down and nude. So, oh, no, I don't guess, do that in Toronto. I guess Maybe there's in a London, lot. but not Toronto. Yeah, there's not a ton of fun stuff to do in Canada, I guess. I mean, if- Oliver Reed has the greatest first line of a Wikipedia article I've ever read. Robert Oliver Reed was an English actor known for his well-to-do, macho image, and Hellraiser lifestyle. <laughs> fucking what a boss he has such sights to show us apparently apparently he has some such sights to show people in uh toronto um oh like a g how bad is health care i should say how bad is mental health care in toronto that david cronenberg has to make movies instead of go to therapy and all these people like have to freeze themselves in the snow dealing with david cronenberg's I, I, I don't think this is I don't think this is an access issue. I think it's a men would rather launch a film <laughs> career than go to therapy. You know, they really support the arts a lot. So, you know, it might be cheaper to just make a movie than go to therapy. You know, that's fucking real. That's fucking real. Wow. A lot of people talk about moving to Canada, but I've never really con- considered it until now. This very moment. <laughs> just make sure not to get the package where it's like public theater. That's the weirdest thing. The public therapy they never explain or go like hey that's not a thing that's supposed to be open to the public yeah what's up with that i feel like it's something that he's trying to prove like there's this this kind of through line that he's trying to prove that it works he is just like a surgery theater there too like yeah it's not like like they're in a black box theater it's like you know i mean People looking down on them from Which, all directions. I don't know. Is is it yeah. better that they did not pay tickets to see this grown man transphobically bully another grown man? Yeah, I would hope that it is just one of those things where it's like this works and this is why I, you know, I'm transphobic this as whole, this guy. This could have been done in a PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah, that would have been weird enough. But then they just had to bring Michael back. I mean, I'm glad that Michael, we see Michael after that because we know that whatever happened didn't work. That we know that Raglan's full of shit and he's yeah. giving people cancer with his, I don't know, role play therapy. That's the thing. Is that, Raglan's just too good of an actor that his acting gives people cancer. Yeah, I guess. Like he, he makes I mean, people manifest is- their rage as like physical ailments all angry children he doesn't do voices or costumes which would have been great and yet he's got like michael and nolan presumably all these other people where he just like on a dime is like i'm these people i'm your husband i'm your father i'm your daughter like i'm you yeah and and they just especially noah who is just like again giving it all in 11 totally like buy into it it seems to be like this role play therapy thing but also michael is now addicted to it and just wants everyone he meets to be his daddy and it's i don't i don't know what's going on but it's it's a choice i'll tell you that i mean it it seems like raglan is making people dependent on him and he's got people like basically brainwashed to be dependent on him after the biting into the womb and all that shit like the thing that most creeped me out in this movie was definitely like a very bearded man like like a child begging people to be his daddy and you live in new york that's you think that would be daily not like that though uh, yeah yeah there not, has to be some press there's some begging people to be the daddy set. in a non-sexual way yeah yeah specifically in a non-sexual way bearded dude asking people to be his daddy in a sexual way is a-okay that's fine i'm into that yeah set the parameters. Uh, i should have rephrased that better but we're powering through <laughs> that's all good that's not this this is a five-year-old wanting this is a more childish than candace like yes. approach to it and it is just like 
I am a 32 year old, like a grown non-binary person and seeing Michael made me go like, oh, I need an adult. Mm. Yeah, it did remind me of there are certain cults like cult practices that are, you know, self-improvement programs or whatever that have this. You can say Nexium. They can't sue us anymore. No, it's not just Nexium, but like there's all sorts of shit where they do the whole thing of like breaking you down to build you back up, which is called programming is what that's called. Um, Also called U.S. military training. Yes. I mean, like it's incredibly predatory. Now the probably shouldn't uh, pull the thread on that sweater though. Come at us, Nexium, and also the U.S. military. I guess. All right. All I have to say to the U.S. military is I'm a fan of Ichigo Kurosaki, and I will talk to you all all day about the Bankai. Every dude I've ever known who's in the military has loved Bleach, and that I feel like that context would have been helpful earlier. That's not how I roll, Ben. You know that. Much like David Cronenberg, you gotta like come into the scene completely raw. But I do explain it. This movie, General is... Mattis, if you could, do you like Kenpachi more? Of course. Anyway, terrible, so... terrible manga. I'm sorry, it's not good. If you like Bleach, cool. If you stopped reading after Soul Society arc, good job. It looks good. Oh, <laughs> when the artist tries, yeah, he's one of the best there's ever been. Nah. But after a certain point, he very much decided not to try. Um, or was too under too much crunch. Oh yeah, TJ Kubo, finish zombie powder, please. There's I was going to jump in guys. there. Let's start <laughs> with the let's start with the easily answered question, which is uh, not real big with the queer issues. Yes, like oh yeah, that whole transphobic, completely like oh my god, gender bullshit thing in the beginning. The fact that it's him supposed to be role playing this guy's dad, I don't know, like whether it's meant to be transphobic or just the character of his dad is meant to be, you know, horrible, toxically masculine character. What? Oh, in another pantheon of uh, great and super empowered uh, women characters in this movie, we've got grandma who spends half of her dialogue reminding people that she likes alcohol. Yes. So does grandpa. (laughs) It's a big drinking family. Also, do you have a British accent? Where did Noah's British accent come from? Because the dad definitely didn't have a British accent. It was part of her programming. I believe that Noah is so fucking dramatic, she just gave herself a British accent. Yeah. She's from the same place as Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She just met Bjork, and she's like, oh, yes, that. Aside from, like, the different class in which, you know, this doctor is likely from i don't think there's too much in the way of of class discussion in this movie do you no i I mean we get we get a scene of frank like his job but like he runs a construction company so that's a white collar job in a blue collar industry yeah i can tell you owners of construction companies are not usually men of the people yeah, he's going to be uh, up against the wall. That's not a reflection on Frank or anything the movie's saying. Just saying, that is not a class thing going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, it very, like, they have him stroll through one construction site at one point in the story. And then it's never really relevant at all that he does construction. Really oh, mentioned yeah. again. Also, I feel like this movie does show a good job about the importance of grammar in journalism. Because there's just a big headline that says police seek dwarf killers. And I'm like, mm-hmm. are those killers who are little people or people who exclusively kill little people? That's... That is not clear from the headline. That's a good point. It's hey. not. I just appreciate that they made up a fake newspaper prop. Yeah, I mean, that's always. I cannot off the top of my head think of any non-white people that are in this movie. Am I forgetting well, I mean, somebody major? It, it definitely gets a points off for not having Brawley. <laughs> We miss Brawley. <laughs> right. Hashtag, just, hashtag justice for Brawley. For real. Where's Brawley? Yeah. Again, we do get some uh, fun Jewish representation. That whole spiel about the lymphatic system. It's like, God damn, Cronenberg, that whole organ fetish just keeps cropping up. You, you couldn't get like you, I feel like he tried to clamp it down and then it just kept seeping through the cracks. In yeah, that when- man's comb over, which again. What was that hair? What was makeup and wardrobe? I guess that was the point because I can't answer, but it was also just like the wildest comb over I've ever seen. I like to think he came in like that and wardrobe was like, you know what? Just keep it. Perfect. I mean, he he did do it. It was the style of Toronto at the time. (laughs) (laughs) 
Everyone right. in Canada was rocking this style in 1971. Do you think that Raglan had also some crazy growths and maybe his like growths were giving other people growths? Because he certainly wore the hardest chorus turtleneck. He might as well have I mean, been wearing a towel around his I neck. I do, if only because if he had gotten more focused, then eventually it would have just been inevitable because he at that point he would have just been a straight up Cronenberg protagonist. And that's just a prerequisite. Like, I guess yeah. after this movie, I guess this is the one Cronenberg movie we've seen where the body transformation is not the inherent theme of it. It is merely like, this thing he's clearly interested in. Yeah. But is just like the means by which the plot happens. It feels like it's the one movie where, and we know why, he has some very personal things to be working through with this movie. But that is the driving force. And then the body horror is incidental. And then it seems like right after this movie, the body horror becomes the focus and the theme unto itself. Well, the, the body horror theme here leans a bit symbolic in terms of like family abuse and that being carried through the generations because the growths that are appearing on Candace at the very end of the movie show that you know the cycle is continuing yeah there's definitely no I think you're totally right I think there is a sense that like the physical transformations need to have a correspond to something thematic happening in the movie and then by the time you get to fly he's just like Man, wouldn't it be cool if Jeff Goldblum spat goo on things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fly is also, you know, a remake. It's one of his few. It's not just him working from whatever's in his head. Fly is like, ah, yeah, this. I remember this movie. Let's make it more fucked up. And he succeeded. Yeah. 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 I, this I, movie does not, does not have a great handle on... Mental health. Clearly, Cronenberg is not a fan of psychology or psychologists. I mean, I can only assume that there is some basis of truth in Dr. Raglan, or at least in Cronenberg's perspective of, I mean, just because the movie is just so fucking allegorical to his real life, I can't imagine that a mental health professional he did not like didn't not play a role. Of some sort in his divorce, but uh, I mean, it's it's just so weird. I mean, look, this isn't the first movie that we've watched where it's clearly the director working some shit out. Uh-huh. Is it the first where the directors flat out come out and told us this is the exact stuff I was working out? I mean, yeah. in terms of of David Cronenberg himself, the individual, I, I, this is a little bit more direct than Crimes of the Future. I was working out how I want somebody to cut into me and take stuff out. Yeah. Now that would I'm, be sexy. I'm really into knife play. Yeah. I, this role. Knowing Cronenberg in the future, like what lies in store in his filmography, I have to look at him in this point in his life and I'm like, to what degree is this a self-serving interpretation? To what degree was the knife play desire already there and you're not fucking mentioning it in this movie with your good guy, Dad Frank? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned during the recap, there's definitely this point where he's talking to the lawyer where it's really verging on some MRA talking points. If you don't know men's rights activists, oh, yeah. there's a lot of like, oh, well, you know, they tend to favor the mother over the father. And it's like, yes, that's true. But if you have like clear visual evidence that the mother is abusing the child. That's a different situation. Like, yeah, that's not. We assume again, not experts in 1970s Canadian divorce law. Yeah, and and the Raglan situation also tweaks it a bit. Like, we're not sure how much influence Raglan has over the system. You know, I mean, he's obviously a rich asshole, so like, he could probably pull some strings. Also, there's not a lot of effort made to get Nola out of that situation, just to like. Keeper because he doesn't give a shit about it. He has already yeah. written her off by the time the movie even starts. Like, yeah. Again, this movie has no sympathy or interest for in Noah, and it is on the strength of Samantha Egger alone that she that the character shines. Well, yeah. I do think that there is some sympathy in there. I do not think it is regarding the Frank situation. When they're going through her issues with her mom and her issues with her dad, I do think that the movie does feel bad for her. It does, you know, 
say that, oh, yeah, her parents were wrong and they were fucked up and it was fucked up what happened to her. And there is, I think, the implication that that's why she's so fucked up now. So our argument is that Cronenberg is sympathetic to his ex-wife when it lets him shit on his in-laws instead. <laughs> I mean, there, there's the narrative. We just can't ignore the narrative of being manipulated by the therapist. David Cronenberg talks a lot about the therapist manipulating people and sometimes plays a therapist doing that specific thing. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes he's on does that in Star Trek and he talks to Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, and makes her disassociate so hard that she loses her body's... Ooh, spoilers, sorry. <laughs> that did happen, and I was sad when she left, but then everything everywhere all at once came out, and I'm like, that was a good call. Yeah. That, that was worth it, Michelle Yeoh. I, am much, I would much rather you make that movie than continue being an underused supporting character in Star Trek Discovery. And she did facilitate the appearance of basically a Time Lord in yeah. Star Trek. Oh. Which was which ended up being the the guardian of forever, which was dope. And as it was like hell. the best episode in the series because yeah. it was just like all Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. And they were also like, what if we make an entire episode that's a callback to the best episode of original Star Trek? Like I mean, that was what Discovery started trying to do, and it took it a while, but it was like took a very meandering path. But finally when it decided that it was not going to adhere to like the original Star Trek timeline anymore, mm -hmm. which is the best thing they could have done with that show. And then they finally did it. Like they, they, you know, it was like therapy. Like they finally just reduced their baggage. Like yeah. They keep trying Crazy. to do not to get further off topic of Star Trek, but they keep trying to just come up like different premises for stuff. And I'm like, just do next, next generation. Just be like, it's a new enterprise. It's a different century. We're a few centuries forward. New crew, and they're still just doing enterprise stuff, but we've moving the timeline along so everything can be new and fresh in Discovery. E. I mean, the, the fucking, fucking mushroom drive to me is so whack. It's so like... I like the mushroom drive. I'm a fan of the mushroom drive. No, I'm also a fan of it. It's just so like, it's so Brian Fuller being like, hey, you guys, you know what's cool? Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Did you know that mycelia can feel you walking wherever you are? And they, there's a network of mycelia that, that reaches across all of mycelia. And apparently it's on the quantum level everywhere in the universe. I just imagine like if being an actor like who plays one of the bridge crew, like being the pilot and being like, oh boy, see, I've been on the show for five years. Are we going to get into my character this year? And the showrunner is just looking at her in the face and going, no. And Brian Fuller was Audi. Anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. One um, day they'll reveal it. Anyway, this can all be, we can cut off. This anyway, is this, is, this, is Star, this, Star is Star, this is just us shooting the shit about Star Trek. We needed a little bit of a, of a, we need uh, a bit of a break, break from the brood, a brood break. Again, will. I can't get over that nobody fights back against it. Like that grandma is just like, and I know she's a grandma. And I know she's like a few drinks in. But she really just like <laughs> rolls around on the floor and screams until she gets like bloody enough for it to count as dead body. I think that these kids are supposed to be super strong. And that brings up to me the real dodgy ass representation of these kids as quote unquote deformed children. Where someone says, I can't remember who says it in the movie, it might have been Frank, who says, they're just freaks. Not great. The very nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, oh. it's it's very dismissive of any sort of condition that children have to deal with in real life. Like the cleft palate thing. The fact that oh. the autopsy doctor is like quizzing them of like, what else do you think is wrong with this child? Let's play operation. There's four things wrong with this dead body. Can you find them all? Yeah. What's There's wrong? When you know the answer. Yeah, I, I think, loved like, when the grandpa goes back to the house, which is still an active crime scene, but has been completely cleaned up except for the tape outline of the body. He just wanders around the house drinking. Are you I, sure that was the tape outline or it was just Keith Haring was there? Because it was a very, very modern. Yeah, I, Keith Haring. We miss you. I'm fascinated, I think, by the central concept of this story, which we don't know is a central concept until the very end, that this woman who has been, like, tormented her whole life has such, like, 
unmitigated rage in her that she cannot continue to like that she cannot live a happy life the only way she can be calm is to expel it into these evil children and you know they become sort of these you know foot soldiers that go out and do the things that she's not brave or strong and or whatever enough to do well that she's not empowered to do yeah for sure i have more background info about this movie and its relationship to kramer versus kramer all right while this movie while the brood came out first Part of the impetus for making it was Cronenberg did find out about the production of Kramer versus Kramer and was apparently so unhappy that was or disillusioned that it showed a family finding a way to still have some sort of stable coexistence after divorce that he decided he was going to show what divorce was really like. Rage uteri. And so he made the brood. Listen, sometimes people, I will say, sometimes people are toxic that you really just need them out. I mean, if if someone is abusing your child, that said, Frank sucks, Nola sucks, that kid is still shit. Frank sucks. He's just nothing. You know, action is just as bad. But he is a he's a single dad at this point who's trying to like find a way to investigate all this stuff that's going on, figure out what's going on with his wife. Gets his, his house kid. built on time so the family can move in in June. Yeah, and do his real job. He has to hand off the kid a little bit just to try and keep, like, the drunk grandfather from killing himself by driving off a bridge. Like, Sure, he's, I mean... He's trying. That's, that was probably one of the more, like, engaging with the teacher was one of the more responsible things that he did. And it was mentioned in the beginning of the series or the beginning of the show that he was missing the PTA meetings for a while. And that might've been because like, no, I don't know if Nola was there at the meetings either or whatever, but like, no, that never comes up again. We never get, we never get any resolution to the, why is Frank missing PTA meetings? Mystery. Well, because he sucks. That's pretty much it. I think it's just because he's like, he doesn't, I mean, it's hard. I know. But the one person that, that Candace smiles around is the teacher. Why did he give the teacher a copy of Raglan's book when he left to check on the grandpa? Probably because he the hadn't only explained. Book that he, owns. he hadn't explained any of this shit to her and was like, I'm going to explain this shit to you when I get back from saving my father-in-law from driving off a cliff drunk. I was hoping he would come back and he'd just be like, hey, I've read this book and since you provided no context, I just absorbed it and I'm interested. I'm going to go also go check it out. I thought for sure it was going to be a situation where she was like, I read his book and I can help you solve the mystery by knowing this thing, this thing, and this thing. But no. no. He probably didn't read the book and was hoping that she would like tell him what's in it. It didn't have any pictures. Yeah, and then I mean, that would have been cool, but like she probably would have explained to him the book if Nola hadn't called and jumped to conclusions, which like she's already unstable. Yeah, she shouldn't be allowed to call. It it was headed in that direction. Like Frank Frank was definitely going to sleep with that teacher if given the chance. And she seems to also think it was heading that direction because she's like, there's too much going on for me to be in your life right now. Yeah. Like she was looking for some dad. And apparently Frank is the cream of the crop of single dads in Toronto. I mean, I can believe that, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I I think Frank is mostly just a a big pile of nothing because he's really just there to be David Cronenberg. And, you know, David Cronenberg is trying to get those people moved into that movie. I do wonder also if the brood is is David Cronenberg's evil rage baby. Oh, man. But no, I I believe you about him being a bit of a nothing of a character. What does a lot of heavy lifting for his character is just how simple yet understandable his motivation is. Like his daughter's being hurt. He wants to get to the bomb and stop his daughter from being hurt. Yeah. It is a simple, easy to follow, compelling motivation that makes up for, there is really nothing else compelling about this character. Yeah. Which I think like that leads very much into our last question here about whether this movie is worth seeing. Because the only thing I would really recommend this movie for is those last 10 minutes. Like, Samantha Egger's performance in this section is outstanding. Like, the movie has to go 
an hour and 10 minutes to for you to get to this hard left turn it takes at the end but like her villainous monologue here her like ripping open that thing with her teeth and like licking the baby queen that shit was wild yeah so she's so good and she's like straight up phantom of the opera levels of of you know singing it to the rafters so i'd almost say just like skip the first hour of the movie I yeah, would no, watch it just to because the buildup is not going to be. Fair. I mean, the buildup is honestly pretty weak. Like it's a confusing, kind of silly uh, horror movie. Like honestly, surprisingly mm-hmm. traditional horror movie from Cronenberg that isn't very good. It's... Like it's not compelling kills. It's not a scary monster. The scenes aren't particularly tense. And you're right. It's only once we start getting like, you know, the real Cronenberg shit with like external wombs and all that and like licking babies clean that starts getting like, you know, actually like unique and interesting. There's some imagery stuff there that I think and some horror elements that are worth exploring. They're so muddled in this movie with the whole commentary on psychology. Like there, there is something there. There is some, you know, just with the imagery and the image of the mother licking her like murder baby clean like there's that's cool the whole that was all gross everything with the womb was gross and then the second grossest thing in the movie is the spilled orange juice and milks that like mix it <laughs> together <laughs> that I don't was know pretty you gross mix milk and orange juice i think that's it that is just like a crime against nature mixing well, milk and orange juice there was some weird shit there where like i thought like it was supposed to be like a, a red herring where it was the milkman trying to like, because the milk came through that panel, and I'm like, I, I don't know where that milk was be. being kept. Like, yeah, did the brood crawl through the wall, but specifically where the fridge was, so he had to also dig through the fridge? I, that I seems way more inefficient than going through a window. Yeah, which they Unless did eventually. She keeps her orange juice and milk by the window. Maybe she was just but keeping it dumb. outside because it's cold. You see, it um, is Toronto. Yeah. And I mean, but, I think the yeah, they had fridges in they definitely had fridges in 1970. Yeah, I think that the um the movie is incredibly dated when it comes to how they define the deformed children. Uh, you know, in terms of representing disability and things like that. You know, having these kid kids have the cleft lip and being like toothless. And David Cronenberg could have made some terrifying, weird shit that was not referential to like conditions that people have to deal with yeah um, i think that i think right. there was an intention there with some of the ways in which the child is deformed i think the, the i think right, the lip, it was like a, i think it was like a design choice and they hadn't fully formed they weren't children who had, had formed in you know a normal way i think is what he was going for yeah but i think combining that with also they don't have genitalia is like weird in a way that it doesn't need to be yeah, but I will say overall, though, the design isn't that memorable or compelling or creative, yeah. you know, from Cronenberg, whose designs and imagination are usually, you know, like on a whole other level. These are just some like weird looking kids and some weird looking masks for all like intents and purposes. And look, maybe part of that is like child labor laws and like you're only allowed to put so much shit on like a child actor in terms of makeup and prosthetics. But uh, it's just not a very good luck for your main monster. Yeah. You know, if they were the, like faceless coats or something. It was like people were being attacked by off-brand South Park action figures. <laughs> I thought that was good. I liked that because, you know, you couldn't tell from the back. Like, they just were kids from the back. But then you look at their faces and it's like a weak mask. If they had like shit coming off of their, like they had trunks or something. I don't know. Like, I, I, I do love when the two just fucking stroll up to the classroom, like not being horror monsters, just being fucking like gangster assassins, just like hammering <laughs> Nola, hammering the teacher and be like, Nola says hello. Walk out. In Toronto, Kenny kills you. I think we came down on the not necessarily recommended side of this, right? Like, I mean, look, if you're a Cronenberg fan, absolutely yeah. need to watch a made for Canadian TV horror film fucking blood and donuts yes and david cronenberg is there yeah it's yeah. it's still a cronenberg movie even technically there's no psychic vampire sex in the brood yeah right um, and that psychic vampire sex was consensual 
Yeah. Well, what do we have to recommend for people this week? Marriage story. Gremlins. No further, no further explanation. Kramer versus Kramer. Just the Kramer episodes of Seinfeld. No. Yeah, don't focus on Michael Richardson. I do like how time is exposed that uh, Jason Alexander and Julie Louis-Dreyfus were definitely the most talented comedians of the bunch. Oh, yeah. And the best people, I think, too. Yeah. And not that, like, Jerry is abysmal as a person, but... He made B-movie. Sure. He sure did. Ray Liotta was the bad guy who, because he ran a honey company. Okay, so are we? Are we really? We're recommending Gremlins and Kramer I'm recommending B Movie, starring Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Liotta as himself. I don't oh know why Ray Liotta didn't play a honey executive. Why it had to be Ray Liotta as himself as an evil honey executive? If you want to watch something that's about psychiatrists or and or psychologists, I get them mixed up all the time. Psychologists, I think, is actually. If you want to watch something about psychologists being crazy weird, just watch anything with Hannibal in it. Manhunter, even. Yeah, psychiatrists can give you drugs. Psychologists are about like the star formations and stuff. I have a legitimate no, that, recommendation. That's uh, astrologers, Jeremy. Let's sure, not, sure. Uh, a legitimate not... recommendation. Check out the podcast, The Shrink Next Door which is a whole podcast about an abusive psychologist who really did abuse and manipulate and control his patients for his own gain. I'm actually, my recommendation is uh, inclusivetherapists.com because they have a lot of really actually good therapists on there and we don't have to perpetuate the narrative of therapists that are completely predatory. I know a lot of people, a lot of queer people who've gotten good therapists that they love on that website. So, you know, this is what David Cronenberg should have had. But, you know, do love Videodrome. I'm glad he did make the movies. You couldn't have an inclusive therapist via VHS. I don't think that would have worked as well. Yeah, uh, what I want to recommend this week is a uh, a movie that just came out on Shudder this week. It is called Resurrection. It stars Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth. It is about a uh, woman and her daughter who, uh, you know, she's a very protective mother. We don't know why immediately at first until uh, she starts seeing a man that freaks her out to see around the place and then approaches him. And we find out that he is her ex something. He was manipulating her as a teenager and uh, did a whole bunch of like heavy duty cult stuff. A lot of which is extremely troubling in the movie, but, you know, conditioned her to want to please him to do these kindnesses for him, which were increasingly horrible things that he would have her do tests of endurance and things like that to to help you know be his muse it's a rough watch in places but it was extremely good and rebecca hall in particular gives just a phenomenal performance in this movie so like it's definitely worth watching it's one of the the top rated horror movies to come out in 2022 it's mostly a big suspense thing but oh boy it is. It was a hard watch and one that I would definitely recommend people check out if that description does not freak you out already. Noted, yes. Heavy, heavy, heavy-duty gaslighting. Yeah. yeah. On a whole different level. All right, I think that does it for us for this week. You can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at BenTheCon and on their website at BenConComics.com. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrom 58 and on my website at JeremyWhitley.com. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and at Prog Horror Pod on Twitter, where you can hit us up and tell us all about, you know, what, what you liked, what you didn't like about the movies, about the podcast. We would love to hear from you. You know, come come chat us up. And speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you'd review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Give us five stars so that more folks can find us and we can get out there to a larger audience well we didn't have a guest this week but thank you as always to emily and ben and thank you to all of you for listening well it's always a pleasure to be here and you know what very merry crowvember to you you're done we can watch other things now hooray done with the works of david cronenberg just kidding tune in next week for a history of violence no we're not doing that I'm surprisingly that. just glad to be done with David Cronenberg at this point. Like I, I like David Cronenberg. Four movies of his back to back is a lot. It's a real deep you dive know? into the mind of the man.
Yeah, like body horror is something that really shouldn't be binged. And, and yet binge it we did. Yes. On the other hand, so. for December, we're gonna start talking about some Draculas. So Yeah. Dracula December. No, baby. did you know there's a Gerard Butler movie where he plays Dracula? Oh yeah. I, I think so. This. Yes. Christopher Plummer plays Van Helsing. Do they kiss? I don't believe so. I kind of want to see the movie that's the black and white opera with the Chinese man as Dracula. I'm interested. I'm interested. I have. I don't know what you're talking about, so I am interested. Yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to say if they can make a movie where Tony Lang plays of uh, Dracula, that would be real dope. Let Tony Lang play uh, Dracula. Yeah. Have we okay. done the yeah, full outro? Guy Madden movie? Yeah, we've done the full outro. Okay. Yeah, Dracula colon pages of a virgin diary. Uh, wild sounds about right yeah speaking of wild we should talk about wendell and wild before too long oh man i would love to talk about wendell and wild yeah also i i would love to hear y'all's thoughts on there's an episode of of the cabinet of curiosities by guillermo del toro that is directed by anna liliana mccore and it's really interesting and i absolutely want to talk about it with someone maybe on the podcast maybe not that the episode is like really dense with themes and I would love to hear people's reactions to it. It's the fourth episode of uh, Cabinet of Curiosities. I will have to check. I want to check out that series at some point. I had to promise Alicia that I would chill out on horror movies, but after doing 41 in October. Yeah. She's got another movie coming out. Are we still doing, is this still part of the episode? Wait, I didn't say my thing. Until next time, everybody, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley. This episode featured the Horror Squad, Jeremy, Ben, and Emily. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening. Bye. Sorry, Alicia.